I have been meeting new people uh, for two services now. I feel like my whole day has just been meeting new people left and right. Uh, so if I haven't got to meet you, know that I or one of our pastors would love to. Uh, we will be out at the tables in the lobby after church. And uh, please make your way to us, force your way into that conversation, whatever it is. We want to shake your hand. We want to get to know you. We have a guest center right there for you because we want to give you a gift bag. We want you to make sure that, that you feel welcome, that you feel loved. And so we're super, super glad that you're here. I will also say, if you're new, that we have a class designed specifically for you. Uh, we do it monthly. It's called Intro to Harvest. And it's the class that's basically, is this the right place for me and my family? How do I figure that out? I have questions. How can I ask those? Or even... How can I get connected into the church? Our next class is actually this upcoming Sunday. It's right after the service next week, uh, right on the other side of that wall for an hour together. And uh, we have snacks, we have childcare. So if that's you and you've been here for maybe one week, or maybe you've been here uh, three weeks, or maybe you've been here three months and you just haven't taken that step, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to connect with you. And I hope that you'll sign up for that on our website, harvestbaptist.info. You can go there, you can sign up for that. And we'll spend the time together next week. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure that you'll be glad that you did. There are uh, many on-ramps in that class as well that help you get connected to the spiritual nutrition of our church. One of those many ramps is actually membership. We do have a family. Um, I raise your hand because I'm not going to find you if I scan. Where are the uh, Virgios? Where, where are you guys at? Oh, right here, right in front of me, okay? The whole row right there filled up, okay? David, Kristen, and the clan right here uh, are coming, and they're uh, actually joining the church and wanting to kind of officially announce, hey, we're part of the family, so love us, welcome us. Uh, we're part of the membership here. So if you would uh, like to welcome them, would you just give them a round of applause and say that we love you guys? And we do, we do. And I know you guys were probably here for, oh, several, several months before you came to that intro class. So maybe that's you, that's your story, and I hope that you'll come next week if, uh, if you never have. I do also, while I'm on the subject of next week, want to tell you that we start a new sermon series next Sunday. We're examining the story of Esther, and we're calling it the God of Great Reversals. This story is an amazing story, but really the macro view of the story is that God takes some situations that are dire, that are hard, and he just reverses them for his glory. And we're going to look at that concept and really apply it to our lives because some of us right now, honestly, could use a reversal. We could use a reversal financially or physically or emotionally. Uh, many of us are just in that spot where we, we need God to take a situation and change it and work it in a way that just seems daunting. It seems like he's not going to be able to do it. And uh, so I invite you back next week. We're going to have a lot of fun walking through for several weeks the story of Esther. And, uh, and I hope that uh, you'll enjoy it. I know that I've already enjoyed my study and preparation for it. I do want to say one more thing, and then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Uh, thank you for being generous. I tried to say this some way, somehow, almost every week. And we try to celebrate a way that your funds get sewn back into the kingdom, back into the community, uh, back into gospel ministry. Uh, we actually, Sheena, are you in here? Sheena Best, wave at me if you're in here. Okay, Sheena's over there. Uh, Sheena and a friend actually lead a nonprofit. And the nonprofit, it simply put, is designed to help foster parents and help foster families. And, uh, and she asked several of our groups here at the church if they would be interested in helping because they were putting together Easter baskets for all of the children in foster care in Butler County. And then it actually able, it, it flowed over into some of Armstrong County and Allegheny County because all the kids in, in Butler County got a, a gift. So our groups were able to step up and she asked the church if we wanted to help. And we said, we would love to, uh, let us put a Bible in all of these, in all of these care packages. So uh, hundreds and hundreds of these went out uh, here about a week ago. 
and you didn't know that your, you know, your funds would go into that to buy all the Bibles, the kids' Bibles, the teen Bibles. Uh, it was several thousand dollars for sure. Uh, but we were able to put them in there, and the baskets had goodies and fun stuff, you know, that sort of thing. But we were able to put a Bible in every single one and just try to be a blessing to some kids and to some families and to some homes that are right around our community that, uh, that need love, uh, need Jesus, uh, need his gospel. I know some of you have the story of, hey, I didn't come to faith because of a friend or even because of a church service. I came to faith because I opened up a Bible and I began to read it. And through the pages of scripture, I started to, to understand who Jesus was and that he was special and that I should believe in him. So uh, we did that this week with some of your funds. So thank you for being generous is the bottom line. And uh, I, I'm passing on a thank you, I know, from a lot of foster families and foster children. I'm sure we'll get a flood of thank you notes in the upcoming couple weeks, but I, I just wanted to pass it along to you and say thank you for being generous. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 is where we're at this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this text is a big text. It's almost 60 verses, but we're going to read about 15 of the verses, okay? We're going to skip around a little bit, and we're going to pick some high points in this chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one. Go by our guest center as our gift to you today, and uh, we'll put the verses on the screen for you to read along with us. But let's just start today by reading a few uh, verses of Scripture that are dedicated to the topic of the resurrection, that are really dedicated to Easter. So read them with me if you would. I'll read with very little commentary, and then we'll add the commentary after. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse number 3. Paul is writing, and he says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep or some are dead. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I, Paul, persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Skip down to verse number 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Yea, and we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised, and if Christ be not raised... Then your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they which also are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Skip down to verse number 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This passage that I just read a portion of to you is the most in-depth text on the resurrection that you could find in the entirety of Scripture. And this story isn't so much uh, the story of what happened. It's not necessarily the gospel accounts of the play-by-play -play of Jesus' resurrection, but really this text is about what the resurrection means for our lives. And you would find that this text is shot through with logic, there is a boatload of deductive reasoning in this text that we just read. 
there are a lot of statements that are these if-then statements. And we read several of those in uh, verse 14, verse 17, verse number 31. This sort of, if Christ is not raised, then this. If the dead be not raised, then this. And what this text is, in summary, is one giant argument in favor of the resurrection. And my goal this morning is to take four parts of this argument and present them to you in favor of the resurrection. And what you would find is that Paul says that the resurrection satisfies the mind, the resurrection releases our conscience, the resurrection bolsters our faith, and the resurrection grips our heart. That's what you'll find. So let's just take these in turn. Let's start with the mind, okay? Paul says, more or less, that the resurrection satisfies the mind. And you find this in, in chapter 15, verse number 14, where he says, if Christ be not risen, then, so you see it there, the if-then argument, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Vain mean empty or devoid of truth. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then what we're preaching and what we're doing is empty, it is devoid of truth, yea, so also... We are found false witnesses of God. So what he says plainly is that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're liars. We have been propagating a false narrative, and we are not accurately reporting the facts. And what Paul does is he moves the resurrection into the realm of testimony, into the realm of witnesses, into the realm of really a courtroom. It's an argument. And the argument that Paul is making is that Jesus did raise. If he didn't raise, it's all in vain, and our witness is false. But he did raise, so I am telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? This is Paul saying, you be the juror. Let's talk about testimony. Let's talk about evidence. Let's talk about our witness. You be the juror. You weigh the evidence. You say, what evidence? Well, that's what he had laid out in the beginning of the passage. If you look in verses 3 all the way through verse number 8, he lays out, the historical case, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And he lays out that there was an empty tomb. Uh, there were witnesses of this empty tomb and seeing Jesus. Then there were changed lives. So he says in verse number four that Jesus raised and the tomb is empty. Then he says in verses five through eight that there were witnesses that saw Jesus. And Paul's writing these words 16 to 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So he can say in verse number six, there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus at the same time, so go talk to them. That's what he says. He says, the better part remained unto the present. The better part are still alive, but some are falling asleep. There's a few people that have died in the last couple of decades, but most of the hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus raised from the dead are still living. They're still available to you, so go interview them, go talk to them, interrogate them if you want, you know? Go to Galilee, go to Judea, get the witnesses together, and you'll find if you get all the witnesses together that they will take 15 minutes each and tell you testimony around the clock from breakfast Monday to, to dinner on Friday. They will, one after the other after the other, will testify of this, and then he says it's changed lives. And he starts with himself in verses 9 and 10, he says, I wasn't worthy to be an apostle. I was the one who persecuted the church. I was the last one who would have believed in Jesus. I was the guy who said, you're making it up and you're lying and that's terrible, so I'll kill you for it. That was me. But I believe in the resurrection now. But then he, he even tips his hat to the idea of these witnesses, that they have changed lives. The only way Paul could invite his audience to go investigate or go interrogate the witnesses is if the witnesses were still witnessing. 
is if they were still, all these years later, still testifying, I would add, at great peril to themselves, it was a dangerous thing to say that you believed in the resurrection of Jesus, and people wanted to kill you for it, but they were still, to this day, stepping up to the plate and saying, no, it's true, I was there, I saw him, it happened. So he makes the offer, go talk to them, and when you put all this together, you have a very powerful case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, ha you have an empty tomb, hundreds of eyewitnesses, and changed lives. And you need all of those together. If, if there's just an empty tomb and there's no witnesses, then people could say, well, you stole the body and you just buried him somewhere else. I don't know what happened to the body. Sure, the tomb's empty, but grave robbers do that stuff all the time. Whoop-de-doo. If there were just witnesses, but the tomb wasn't empty, then you could say, Test tell me all you want. You hallucinated. Like, Crack the bad boy open. His bones are still in there, right? But if you have the two together, all of a sudden you have something that becomes much more powerful and you add to that changed lives of people who are willing to risk their lives for this testimony, all of a sudden you have, you have evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, why are you being so logical? Okay, it's Easter. It's Easter. Help us feel good. Tell us good stories. Put smiles on our faces. I'm... I'm I'm being logical and not just taking Easter and saying, oh, let's be happy. We should be happy. We should celebrate. We should. But it's more than just be happy, celebrate, you know, spring follows winter, light follows darkness. You know, this, this is just, you know, a pep rally. It's more than that. You're supposed to have a faith that's shot through with logic. And Paul goes out of his way to point us and to point our minds to the reality of the resurrection. And I would even argue as a preacher that there is a kind of preaching that is so overly emotional and so anti-intellectual that it encourages you to more or less take your powers of deduction and, and dismantle them and just put your brain on a shelf and just, you know, jump blindly into faith. And I would argue that that's not how the apostles preached the resurrection. They preached the resurrection with evidence. They preached it with facts. They preached it in a way that was, this is true. It happened. If it didn't, then we're lying. It's right or wrong, truth or lies, one or the other. This isn't just a, a series of stories to make us feel good and let's invent a religion. This is historical, factual, happened or didn't, one or the other. And this is me doing my best to encourage you to consider the introduction of the evidence, to stop, to ponder, to think, to let it satisfy your mind. Now, I know, I'm aware, that the majority of the room is likely people who have already considered the, the resurrection and would say, I've been there, done that, I've put my faith in Jesus, I've put my faith in the resurrection. But I'm also aware on Easter Sunday morning that there are more than a few in the room who would say, I'm atheist or I'm skeptical, you know, mom drugged me here because, you know, it's Easter, it's the one time a year I agree to go to church to, for her, you know, I got to go through the pain of church so I can get the gain of lunch, and, it, you know, it's worth it. So I understand there's some of you here, and I'm encouraging you, consider the evidence. Stop and ponder. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not encouraging you to jump blindly into faith. I'm encouraging you to stop and say, how do you account for this? The burden of proof is on you. I know you don't want to hear that, but the burden of proof is on you. You give me a historically possible alternate explanation for what happened and how the Christian church took off. How they were able to preach <clears throat> immediately and passionately that Jesus rose from the dead and that gained traction. There had to be an empty tomb. There had to be eyewitnesses, hundreds of them, okay? You don't hallucinate in groups. You can do that by yourself, but you don't do that in groups. Hundreds together saw them. 
And their lives were changed, and they risked their lives. This, this wasn't just something that they, that they made up. You don't die for a hoax if you know it's not true. You die for things you believe in. You give me a plausible explanation for that other than Jesus rose from the dead. He said, ah, well, I don't know. All I know is people don't rise from the dead. Okay, we're not doing history anymore, though. We're doing philosophy. I'm talking about history. The historical facts say Jesus rose from the dead. So let it satisfy your mind. But secondly, the resurrection of Jesus releases our conscience. This is a fascinating portion of this text where Paul says, if Christ be not raised, not only is our faith vain, talking about it's, it's devoid of truth, but also ye are yet in your sins. Now this is the same if-then principle. If he didn't raise, then you are still in your sins, but it's a different argument. I'll put it to you this way. How did Paul get past his past? He alludes to it in verse number 9 when he says, I wasn't worthy to be an apostle. Well, he says, I, I wasn't worthy to be an apostle. I was the one who persecuted the church. Okay, so let me break that down. That means Paul killed Christians. Not like, you know, I just wouldn't have it on Facebook and I told them they were wrong. Okay, Paul killed Christians. Paul killed lots of Christians with glee. That's who he was. That's what he did. Now Paul is part of the church, and he's going to church, and he's having revival meetings and praying with the friends and family of the people he previously murdered. Okay? Just let that sink in for a minute. There's probably not anyone in the room right here who's worshiping today with the friends and family of those that you murdered. How do you do that? How do you, how do you like, not walk through church and life just with a dark cloud over your head. How could your conscience be freed from that? How could you get rid of the guilt complex? How could you possibly overcome that and live with yourself? And we know that Paul did, because he says in verse number 9, I'm not worthy, and I persecuted the church. But then in verse 10, the next verse, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Look, I've accepted it. I am what I am. His grace, which was bestowed upon me, it was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all. Who's they all? All the other witnesses. Peter, James, the apostles, the, the guys who wrote scripture. Paul is saying, I'm the most successful apostle. I'm the most effective. And he was. He was right. How? You say, you say time out, time out. You can't have both, Pastor. It, it, tell me, is, is Paul the guy who has the guilt complex and seems like he has low self-esteem, verse number 9, or he is the guy who seems like he has a ton of confidence and a ton of vibrato, and God uses me the best, and, and you know, I'm the best. Both of those can't be in the same guy. And while I exaggerated them a bit, they are both in the same guy. There's not a false dichotomy here. Paul holds to both. How? How can he move past that past and be able to be used of God in a great way? I would argue what he says is that the resurrection has soothed his conscience. I'll put it to you this way. What we talk about on Passion Weekend, Jesus died for us, Jesus was buried for us, Jesus rose for us. What we talk about essentially is that for something to get clean, something else had to get dirty. For you to get clean, Jesus got dirty. For, for you to be released, Jesus got, got in bondage and got chained and got arrested and, and he took that. For you to be freed, Jesus was actually chained up. For you to be uh, released, for you to be made whole, then Jesus was broken, right? How do we know that that actually is true? 
The resurrection is a miracle designed to stamp all of Jesus' teaching and all of Passion Weekend with a stamp of validity. The resurrection is meant to show you that was true. So I'll, I'll break it down this way. How many Sam's Clubs members do we have in the room? Sam's Club members, raise your hand. Let's see you, okay? The buy and bolt people, all right? When you go to Sam's Club, something happens. Sam's Club is notorious for it. It's like, you can do this at Costco or Walmart some, but they always do it at Sam's Club, at least every time I've been there. You go in, you get your buggy, you know, you load it with like a mountain of napkins or, you know, something like that. You needed one pen, so you buy the box of 8,000. So you get in your buggy, you pay for it, then you're on your way out the door, and, and who's at the door waiting for you? They're not greeters, but they are employees, okay? They're not there to be like, have a nice day. They're there to check that you bought what's in your cart, right? The plainclothes people who stand there, and you give them the receipt, and they scan it, and then they scan something in your, in your cart to make sure you didn't steal it, and then they highlight, I don't know why they highlight it, but there's always a highlighter involved. You know what I'm talking about? What, what do they do? They're there to check your receipt. So if you have stolen something, you're moving towards that door with, with not very much confidence. I hope you don't scan that one, you know? If you haven't stolen anything, you stroll towards that door with utter confidence, right? Because the, the person is going to say, let me see your seat. And you're going to whip that bad boy out with confidence and say, be gone, you knave, and give it to them. And then, you, you know, you stroll out of there, right? Because you have a receipt. A receipt is a proof of purchase. I really paid for this, so you can't haggle me no more, Right? Jesus says that he dies on the cross for our sins, and he pays the debt for our sins. How do we know he did that? How do we know he didn't just make it up? How do we know that wasn't just a fairy tale? Or Yeah, he really died, but I don't know. I never saw my sins. Like, I never took my sins out and measured them. And it's not a scientific thing. Like, can, can you see my sins? Can you measure? How do I really know they're gone? The resurrection. The resurrection is the receipt. It's the proof of purchase that what I said I did, it really was paid for and it's gone. So Paul can say, if the resurrection didn't happen, then I'm still in my sins. Reverse it. The resurrection did happen, so I'm no longer in my sins, right? So yeah, I killed them. And yeah, I persecuted. And yeah, I'm a mess and I was a monster. But the resurrection happened. I put my faith in Jesus. Jesus told me that he died for my sins. So when he raised, he gave me the receipt, and I don't have to be haggled anymore. Devil, be gone, you knave, right? I, I don't have to have this hounding me, the shame, the guilt. My conscience can be soothed. It's been said that a, a clear conscience is the softest pillow. If that's true, and I think that it is, then try the resurrection, okay? It's like this divine my pillow. It's the best pillow you could ever get to help soothe your conscience. Not because you did it. Paul said it's the grace of God. Jesus did it. And I know he did it because he raised from the dead. It's proof. It's all the proof that I need. My sins are gone. There's an old hymn that I think says it best. And there's a stanza from the hymn that says, May the accusers roar of all the wrongs I have done. I know them all and thousands more but Jehovah knoweth none. What that says is, go ahead, accuse me. Tell me that used to be me. Tell me I did. You're right. I know all that, and I know a whole bunch more that you, that you don't know. But it's gone. Jesus has taken care of it. The, the cross and the resurrection, it's over. It's done. It's gone. So the resurrection is meant to move into reality and not just be historical facts, but start to help you 
with your life, with your conscience, with, with your guilt, to know that the sins are gone. Thirdly, the resurrection bolsters our faith. Verse 17 says, if, if Christ be not raised, then our faith is vain and we're yet in our sins. But he continues, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So same if then. If Christ be not raised, then those who died, they're just dead. Then in this life only we're miserable because we don't have any hope after this life. That's what Paul's talking about, the afterlife. What he's saying is, if there's no resurrection, the people who died, that's it. They just died. Dust to dust, ash to ash, they're just, that's, there's, there's nothing else to talk about. They're just dead. They're just in the ground. There's no consciousness. Then he says, if in this life only we have this. If, if all there is is this life, if there's no eternity, and he's, he says, then I would be miserable. But if Jesus raised, then they're not just dead. Then there is life after death. If Jesus raised, then it's not in this life only we have hope, but we have hope after this life. What he's saying is the resurrection helps us know that there is an afterlife. And Paul begins to look death in the face and talk to it in light of the resurrection. And you can read more about this at the end of this chapter. I didn't read it today for sake of time. But Paul begins to, to say, oh, death, where's your sting? And oh, grave, where's your victory? And he begins to talk to death based from the position of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's, here's where I want to help you. All religions have stories about the afterlife, right? If you're Mormon, then, you know, supposedly you'll inherit a planet or something like that. And, and that's if you're a guy, you'll get a planet and a whole bunch of wives. If you're a gal, then you get to be one of the wives. I'm not sure why that's appealing, but, uh, you know, there's still females in Mormonism. I, I don't understand it, but nevertheless. If you're a Muslim, then, you know, sacrifice yourself for Allah, get a bunch of virgins. If you're Jehovah's Witness, then, you know, it is pretty much dust to dust, ash to ash. Instead of, like, the 144,000 really good ones of us, then, then we'll make it through somehow. Uh, others are, you know, you're reincarnated. E even the secular, okay, secular people say, I'm not religious, I don't believe in religion, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. But even secular people have stories to help us cope with death. Even, even the secular mindset that's be becoming very pervasive nowadays is just, well, death is just natural. It's just the next step. It's the next stage of life. You're just, you're just a, a drop dripping back into the cosmic ocean sort of stuff, which we know, like, doesn't even correspond to reality. Like, it, you're putting lipstick on a skeleton. Like, it, you're just, you're making it worse. To say that, like, oh, it's just natural and it's just beautiful and we're just going back into the ground. Like, I've been around death, okay? It's not that way. It's painful and it hurts and you know when you're in the presence of death that, that it just, it feels not right. It feels like an enemy. And it hurts for you and it hurts for other people. There's nothing, you know, natural and beautiful about it. But everyone has a story to help us because we all know death is a reality. How do we know that Christianity's story is better than the other stories? How do we know it's better than Peter Pan is going to take you to Never Never Land? Right? Everybody got a story. What's to say that our story is better? All the other stories don't have a person actually raising from the dead in the middle of history. That's the difference, right? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying there is afterlife. It isn't just this life only. There is something to come. And the reason I, the reason I know that is because of the resurrection. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then no, there isn't anything. He's saying the proof of that is, is 
basically, if Jesus rose from the dead, then believe everything he said. And he talked about the afterlife. He said he was going to prepare a place. He said that there was a heaven. If he rose from the dead, then believe everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then believe nothing he said. Ignore it. Shove it to the side. But he rose, so what he said about life, what he said about the afterlife, what he said that, that there is consciousness after our body goes in the ground and that those who know Jesus, those bodies one day will come up out of the ground and just like Jesus rose, we two Christians will rise again. We're saying that is real. That, that's not just a story or a fairy tale. That's something that, that matters for us. All the promises of Jesus are true. He's going to take us to a place. He's going to make all the sad things come untrue. That, that we can know this because of the resurrection. You say, okay, great, pastor, I'm supposed to believe in heaven because of the resurrection. Let me push it down a little more into your life. This would further mean that you don't have to run through life frantic, fearing that you're going to miss out on everything. If the, if the resurrection is going to happen and there is an afterlife, then what you have to know is that you don't have to go experience everything before you die. If there's no resurrection and it's just this life, then what do we got left? 40 years, 30 years, some of you 10, 5? That's all you got left. You better get all you can then, right? If there's no afterlife, then you, you better enjoy it. You better eat all the, all the good food that you can and try every restaurant you, in the city. You know, make sure you get all of them. You better visit every place you can and see every site you can. Get to the eight wonders of the world. You mean you're never going to see anything like that again. You're dead. You're gone. It's over. It's done, right? You, you, you better fear missing out everything. You better run around as frantic as possible to get as much gusto as you possibly can in this life. But if the resurrection is true, then there is an afterlife. And if there is an, is an afterlife, calm down. You don't got to freak out. You don't have to go do everything and see everything and enjoy it all and have it all. Why? Because there's a whole lot more to come, right? The resurrection is meant to teach us that if, if you know Jesus and you believe in him, you're not going to miss out on anything. Like, it's going to be better. Like, you're going to upgrade it all. Wherever you live, wherever you go, whatever you eat, right, there is a future. And not just a future that is a disembodied, float-around, ethereal, you know, be a spirit person in the sky. There is a resurrection, like, a, a glorified body where your feet touch the ground, where you will walk and march and dance. And Matt gets up on this thing, and he's leading the choir, and he's skipping, and he's dancing. He, he can do that in heaven, in a new body, we'll swim, play ball, eat food, ride a horse, you know? You, you know? you don't miss out on anything is the bottom line. So you can actually reprioritize your life here for the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. You don't have to cross everything off your bucket list. You don't even got to make a bucket list. Heaven's coming. Eternity's coming. A resurrection is coming, right? So this, this is meant to bolster our faith and to cause us, like Easter. I don't know if you ever thought about death and, and the afterlife on Easter, but it's meant to make you stop and ponder that and affect your life in that way. Lastly, the resurrection grips our heart. This is at the end of the text, verses 30, 31, and 32. I read it, and you probably didn't understand what I was reading, frankly, because it's a little tangled up. But once you understand it, it's awesome. Paul says this, 
why stand we in jeopardy every hour? So why am I constantly in danger? And he's, he's going to say, if the resurrection isn't true, then why would I possibly do this? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. That doesn't mean like I just metaphorically die to self. What he's saying is, I am in jeopardy of losing my life every day. That's, that's how big the jeopardy is. Verse number 32, if after the manner of men I have fought with the beast at Ephesus, to be frank, we don't know what he's talking about. There's a lot of theories. Apparently, whoever Paul was writing to, they knew what he was referring to. They knew the story. But we don't have an account of him fighting with the beast at Ephesus. Maybe the beasts are like bad people. Maybe the beasts are legitimate beasts, like they're lions, and they tried to kill Paul by putting him in a gladiator fight and a lion eating him or something. We don't know. But we know this. This was bad. Fighting with beasts at Ephesus wasn't the thing that you just wanted to do for vacation, okay? We know it was tough. It was not cool. So why would I be in peril? Why would I risk my life? Why, why would I fight with these beasts at Ephesus? What advantage would it be to me? How would this help me if the dead rise not? That's a fair question. If there's no afterlife, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why would I possibly sacrifice myself? Why would I possibly be unselfish? So then he gives you the, the natural conclusion. If, if Jesus didn't rise, why sacrifice yourself? And he says, then just do this. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just be hedonistic. If Jesus didn't rise, then go ahead. Live for yourself. Try to, try to squeeze every drop of pleasure you can out of this life. Just go eat and drink and know that it's all going to end soon and the end. But what he says is, Jesus did raise. The resurrection is happening. Therefore, it grips me. So now I'm willing to be in jeopardy. Now I'm willing to risk my life. Now I'm willing to fight with the beasts at Ephesus. Now I don't live a hedonistic life where it's just all about the pleasure that I get out of this. Now I live for the sake of other people. This is what he says in verse number 31. I protest by your rejoicing. It's a, it's a creative say to... to a creative way to say that I'm, I'm doing this for the sake of the people that I love. What he says, I'm just going to bottom shelf it, is that the resurrection is more than a historical fact. This isn't just some psychotherapy for my guilt. This isn't just a theology lesson that never intersects with reality. This isn't Jesus rose from the dead, pie in the sky, celebrate, smiles, Easter, move on with life, talk about it next year. He's making the claim that's absolutely valid, that if you think it through, the resurrection means that my life changes. Now I'm willing to sacrifice myself. Now I'm willing to be unselfish. Now I'm willing to put them first. What he's saying is the resurrection has argued me into a different person. I'm not the same. I used to be the guy that persecuted the church. Now I act differently. Now I think differently. My mode of operation is different. This is making me more brave, more fearless, more confident, a more glorious person. And don't we want that? Don't we want to be more brave, more fearless, more confident, a more glorious person? Hasn't this last year just tinkered with us left and right the the pandemic the the reality of our own mortality and who knows what's going to happen and what's this thing and it kills 80 percent of the people it touches and who knows what all that comes and then things calm down a little bit and then they vent back up and then there's political and then there's this 
some of you have gone through the last year and you, you heard me say, Esther next week, God of great reversals. And you've thought, holy smokes, I need a great reversal. Because I am, I am mentally fried. I, I gorge on news and social media and it just has, it has done a number on my thinking patterns. I've, I feel so unhealthy emotionally. I feel despondent and in despair. I've, I've, I feel physically like I'm scared all the time, running around, not knowing what's going to happen to me, and if I should wear a mask, or if I shouldn't, or this. And, I've, and some of you would say this last year has, has just messed with you. When you say I need to be more brave, or more confident, or more fearless, or a more glorious person, that's the opposite of last year. Paul is a man who is saying, plainly, I consider the resurrection, and it allows me to stare down the barrel of the worst life has to throw at me. My life in jeopardy. I die daily. The beast at Ephesus. I stare down the barrel of the worst, and I can face it. I would tell you, in, in love as, as your pastor, if this last year has messed with you, and you've had to stare down the barrel of the worst life has to throw at you, and you couldn't really face it with confidence and courage, maybe... Maybe you just need to go consider the resurrection a little bit more. Because it's not just meant to be a concept. It's meant to be something that takes you and grips you and helps you live. Yes, the afterlife and eternity, but it helps you live today. So this morning, think through this. Think, think through that it did happen. Think through that we're no longer in our sins, and that is our, our proof of purchase. Think through the reality that there is an afterlife, and we don't have to just live for here and now. And take time to think about the message of Jesus and how it should do something for you. It should grip your heart, right? This shouldn't just be, you know, chicken soup for the soul. This should be something that actually gets a hold of you and, and works its way down into your day-to-day living. I want to end this morning with this and i think i end almost every easter in this way the the crux of the entire message of christianity is jesus lives and the number one question that should come from that is do you and by do you live i don't mean are you here listening to me and your heart's beating and your brain's working i mean do you live in jesus like the the spiritual life that he offers Jesus says that he came and he died and he was buried and he rose so that he could offer life and that he could offer life more abundantly. And if you've never believed in Jesus, part of a way you could describe that is that you get to experience real life, his life. And if you never have today, I actually want to invite you to do just that. Because the risen Lord imparts life to those that believe on him. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter number 10? He says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, so confess, Jesus, you are Lord, you're in charge, you're, you're in control of my life, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Easter is meant to bring you to a point of decision, if you've never been there, to say, will I make Jesus Lord of my life, and will I believe that he actually raised from the dead? And the Bible says, if you will do that, make him Lord and believe that he rose, then you will be saved, saved from your sin. He will forgive your sin. He will, as Paul put it, make you no longer in your sins. Take away the guilt, take away the shame, give you the afterlife. What he says is, if you believe in me, then I have a place for you. There's life after death. Give you, give you what you need, the tools actually necessary to go through this life in a courageous way. I want to invite 
all the musicians in the room actually just to come up to the platform. They're going to move up this way. While they do, I want us as a, as a church body, I know that they're moving, it's distracting, but I wanted to get it out of the way now. They're going to sing for us in a minute, and we're going to end on a high note with Easter. It's going to be a lot of fun for them to sing one more time. But I want us to take two minutes and to actually stop and to try our best to let the truth of the resurrection and the arguments that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15 start to work their way in. Start to actually meditate on them a little bit. And I'm going to invite you, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I'm going to invite you actually right now to, to just bow your head and to have a moment of prayer with me. If you're a Christian, I'm going to encourage you to actually take a moment and talk to the Lord. I, I gave you a lot of different facets today. You can pick whatever one is, is best for you. Maybe you just want to remember what it was like to believe in Jesus when you didn't believe and then you came to faith. Maybe you need to spend some time thinking about Jesus rose, so my sins are really gone, they're really done, and I don't have to have the guilt hanging over me anymore. Maybe you need to think about how this should make you more courageous to know that there's a, there's a resurrection. There's a resurrection awaiting you. You don't have to grab for all you can this life. What I'm saying is that if you're a Christian, I want you to actually talk to the Lord for a moment. Now, if you're not a Christian in the room, and when I say not a Christian, I don't mean that, hey, I, I don't call myself a Christian or I've never been baptized or I've never gone to church. I don't mean that. I mean you have never come to the place in your life where you've said, number one, Jesus, you're Lord, you're in charge. And number two, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I believe that. I really do. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. To put your faith and your trust in him. And the scriptures say that if you will do that you actually will be saved. If you want to invite Jesus to be Lord and put your faith in him and believe in the resurrection, then I'm gonna encourage you where you sit, perhaps just to call out to God and to pray to him. I'll even lead you in a prayer. You don't have to pray these exact words, but if you will, where you sit in your heart, with meaning, call out to God and tell him this, then he'll save you. If you'd like to, just pray something like this. Just say, dear God, I know that you love me and I know that you want to save me. And Jesus, I believe that you died to save me and that you promised to save me if I would trust you. So right now, I trust you. I believe you died for my sins and I believe you rose from the dead. I am confessing you as Lord and I'm asking you to come into my life and to forgive me. Now, if you just prayed something like that, I would encourage you right where you sit to actually pray again and to thank him. And maybe say something like this. Just say, thank you for saving me, Jesus. I don't deserve it, but I receive it by faith. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. You are now my Savior and my Lord and my God and my friend. And because you died for me, I'm asking you to help me live for you. From this day forward, Help me to never be ashamed of you. In Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Our Father, we come to you one more time praying not to be trite or just because it's the thing to do, but we come to stop as your people and reflect on the reality that you did die on a cross and that you did raise from the dead. Jesus, thank you for not just 
telling us to believe a story and giving us no evidence and no proof or no stamp of validity. We thank you this morning for the resurrection, for all of the implications. There are so many of what this should mean for our life and how the gospel should help us move forward day to day. And I pray that because of our time together this morning, we as your people would not just be more informed, but that we would be able to live for you to a greater capacity. Lord, help us to be the people that are released from guilt. Help us to be the people that celebrate eternity and that we live from a perspective of eternity and that we don't have to be selfish and needing to live for ourselves in this life. Lord, help us to move forward in this year, 2021, with more confidence, Lord, with more strength because of your resurrection. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take just a